integrating different perspectives in the boardroom. Awareness grows that we need people around the table that bring in different perspectives to tackle the challenges of today. However, let's face it, different perspectives in the boardroom can also be challenging and difficult to handle. Not seldom have I heard that the director who brings in a different perspective is perceived to be difficult, annoying and hard to deal with. It needs skills to turn a different perspective into a value add. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk with Sir John Tusa. Sir John might be best known to a wider audience as the presenter of BBC's Newsnight and the managing director of the BBC World Service. He was also the managing director of the Barbican Arts Centre and served on the boards of cultural institutions like the British Museum. Whom better can be asked about integrating different perspectives in the boardroom? I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. So John, thank you so, so much for contributing again to the Better Boards podcast series. Very delighted to do so, Sabine. So John, I mean, you had a very, very distinguished career. You served as an executive and as a non-executive of some of the most iconic institutions in the UK. And certainly when I look at the organizations you served, you came across, you must have come across different perspectives in the boardroom. Why does it actually matter? Why do different perspectives matter? Why should we bother with different perspectives? First of all, because that is um, what human beings are. They are different people and they have different perspectives. Secondly, you need different perspectives. I can think of few things more useless than a gathering of people, let's say a board of 12, a board of 20, it doesn't matter what it is, where everybody thought exactly the same way. You have the difference of skills. Now, just because people have a different skill, it doesn't mean to say that they are going to think differently, but they, they certainly won't think the same. So by the time you have different backgrounds, after all, you will have a lawyer, let's say, you'll have an accountant, you may have an engineer, you may have people from the creative industries, you may have people with a business background. This already gives you a great variety. By the way, I prefer to use the word variety. I know what diversity means, and that too is important. But we need to have these skills, these differences of opinion, because otherwise, why do you bother to get together if you're all thinking the same thing from the start? Wouldn't it be far easier just to appoint people where you would feel entirely safe and where you can be certain that they think pretty much like you as a CEO or as a chair? I think that that would be a great mistake. Where you need to have unity, or at least a common approach, is in an understanding of the organization. And if you don't understand the organization, and if you don't believe that the organization should be understood, then you probably shouldn't be on that board. And the best way you can then contribute to realizing what that organization wants to be is to provide your different skills, 
your different character, your different approach. After all, some of us will be more radical. Some of us will incline mm. to the conservative. And you will need that balance. Some people who are saying, well, we need a check on these ideas. Others who are saying, yes, I think that we have checked them and we now need to go for them in a very serious way. That is why you need to have such a variety of available approaches, but always because what is common and what unites them is an understanding of what the organization is and why they work on the board for that organization. So we have now a variety of perspectives. What needs to happen that we make the most of it? How does an environment in which these different varieties, yeah, these varieties can really flourish? How does an environment look like where this is possible? First of all, I think it needs a chair who runs the board, who makes it clear that he or she wishes to have the contributions of every single member on the board. And there are some chairs who don't invite contribution. They are less effective than the chairs who do. There are also chairs who <laughs> need to make it clear sometimes that not everybody has to say something about every subject that comes up before the board. There needs to be an economy. You can contribute without speaking the whole time. And a chair has to be able to do that. The chief executive also has to make it clear that they are interested mm -hmm. in what the board has to say. There are many chief executives who are so defensive or so authoritarian that they either squash discussion, they make it clear that it's not welcome. In other words, the perspectives are there, the chair needs to bring them out, the chief executive certainly needs to, because after all, if the chief executive is not interested in the perspectives and the skills of the members of the board, he is missing out on a vital resource. The great director, former director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor, said it was essential that he could draw on the individual skills of members of the British Museum trustees because he had 24 people and they represented a tremendous range mm -hmm. of skill, expertise and experience. And Neil McGregor knew that he could call on them sometimes one at a time often one at a time, but he could call on them because they're available. And a CEO who regards the board as being something that he doesn't want to hear their opinions, I think making a great mistake and is probably rather stupid. And there's one more thing. Every member of the board must know that they are there not just because of their skills. Their skills are important. I might say that I was usually brought onto a board because I was supposed to know something about media, broadcasting, public information, etc. In nearly 30 years on a variety of boards, I don't remember being particularly consulted on that subject at all. <laughs> and that, was, that was all right, because when you're on the board, you are there as a full member. It's not only the accountant who can talk about money. 
It's not only the lawyer who can talk about the law. There are no stupid questions. So I think the combination of that, the role of the chair, the role of the CEO, and the understanding that every board member is equal and can say something about any subject under the sun, then you get the perspectives in a constructive way. But let's face it, time is tight and the agenda of board meetings are full. They're overflowing. What can fellow directors really do to bring out different perspectives? The first thing that has to happen is that the chair has to make it clear that the information that he or she, as chair, want is the right information. The CEO must also want to provide the right information, not too much. I was on the court of the University of the Arts London. I was chair of the court. We appointed a new vice-chancellor who was a former lawyer, and he was appalled, as I was, by the volume of paper that was thrust at the board. He said, nobody can work, nobody can take decisions, nobody can give guidance like this. And together, we just slimmed it down because what we were subject to, and we got rid of, was that old tactic of drown them in information then they won't see what the questions are that they ought to ask. So it's up to the chair to say, I need the agenda, which is relevant to the decisions we have to take, and I need the information which will allow me and the board to give advice, guidance on those decisions. But by the time you get hundreds of pages, as we used to get, hundreds of pages, that is an absolute nightmare. It's completely wrong and it is destructive and you'll never get good board meetings like that. The number of times that people say to me, you know, I wish we had proper discussion at board meetings, but we're yes. so busy going through the papers. Most, all the time. <laughs> yeah, most of the papers should have been looked at by subcommittees first. And then if there's an issue that then comes to the main board. So these things are entirely in the hand of the board. If they allow themselves to be swamped by paper and pseudo information, that is their fault. They are not controlling the way the board runs its business. And which behaviors have you seen are really helpful in bringing out this variety? What have you seen is really working? When a chairman is constructive, when a chairman wants to hear, when a chairman can sense how much discussion is needed on a particular subject, because you always have an idea what the subject is that you are, are discussing, and that you will want to hear from a particular board member, because you know they may have a slightly unorthodox view on what is going on. It is a bit like chairing a broadcast discussion, mm. picking the right person to make the right contribution. Can I give you one example of how this happened? Yes, please. <laughs> At the British Museum, we were discussing the question of whether we might consider lending the Parthenon sculptures to the Greek government if the Greek government swore absolutely that they would return the sculptures once the loan was finished. Now, We didn't think this was likely, but we were taking it seriously. One member of the board who 
as a Greek Cypriot, a very distinguished archaeologist called Edmir Leventis, said, I must tell you one thing. If the British Museum loaned the Parthenon sculptures to the Greek government, it would be impossible for the Greek government ever to return them. And if they tried, the government would fall. Please remember that. One member, one mm. member of the board with an absolutely decisive contribution. And it's knowing who is likely to make that decisive contribution that is so important. That's an amazing example. Preparing the ground that all of this is possible. I assume that there is also quite some work to do in between the board meetings and not just during the board meetings. There's a lot of work to do. At the University of the Arts, we had regular meetings with the academic leaders on an informal basis, sandwich lunches, that sort of thing. So you knew what the atmosphere was. You knew what the issues were. That was done in between times. There should be no surprises. And this is where the relationship between the chair and the CEO or the chairman of the court and the vice chancellor is absolutely crucial. At the University of the Arts, I and the vice chancellor, Nigel Carrington, worked on the basis of one very simple principle. You will hear it from me first. Mm. Always from me first. A friend of mine who is a banker, and who uh, was the chair of many organizations, he said, I never wanted to be taken by surprise. I never wanted my executives to say, oh, we've got some interesting news for you. He said, if they had interesting news for me, it meant that they hadn't told me before. And you can't work like that. You need constant running current openness. With my chief executive at the Wigmore Hall, he would ring up whenever there was something that might be a problem. He didn't wait until the board meeting. He mm. didn't wait until we met. He would ring. So it's constant communication. And also, I have to say, socialization. Good boards are boards that socialize. And there is, you don't have to you know, be having dinner with one another the whole time, but there is research which shows that boards which have a steady process of socialization so that you know the people you're on the board work better than boards where you just meet once every three months. You look around and you think, who the hell are these, these people? You need to socialize. And I have many good friends from boards, particularly the British Museum, because we socialized. And I think we were a good board as well. So what do you advise boards to do now? Because clearly socializing suffered in what we have been through in the pandemic. What do you advise boards to do now uh, that they can really flourish again? Start socializing. <laughs> and, you know, on whatever basis, and I don't know about you, but at the moment, I find that when you socialize in whatever the environment is now, the sense of relief mm, and pleasure is so great and that I wonder whether this sense of I'm really glad to be back I'm glad to be talking to my colleagues. I'm glad to be really engaged with the organization, whether this doesn't provide a new opportunity for a new dynamic in the board executive relationship. Because you like the organization, you love it, you've survived, it has survived, they have survived. Now let's make something of the fact that we've survived. 
What a beautiful, positive message. Coming to a close, what are the three things our listeners should take away from this podcast? Being on a board takes time. Being on a board deserves time. Being on a board deserves effort. But being on a board can also be an enormous learning experience for you. Because the number of people that you meet from different disciplines who you would not otherwise meet is very rich. And the number of organizations that you get an insight into is also very rich. So it's hard work, but you learn. And if you socialize, it is also fun as it should be. And if you are not learning, and if there's no fun, then there's either something wrong with the board or there's something wrong with you. Thank you so, so much, Sir John. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sabine. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards are always delighted to hear from you. You can best reach us at info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.